Please turn with me to James chapter 1, verse 21. In his book, Living Above the Level of Mediocrity, Chuck Swindoll told a modern-day parable about a businessman who left his business in the hands of the employees. He had to go away on a long journey. He was going to be gone for several years. And before he left, he gathered them all together, and he said, I'm going to be gone quite a while, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to write to you frequently. I'm going to give you instructions about how to run the business, how to operate it according to my values, how to make a profit for us. And the employees all said, Excellent. That's great. We, man, we, we're, we're there for you. We will pull through. Well, the businessman left, and true to his word, he continuously wrote letters back to them, giving them guidance and instruction. And after a few years, he returned, and he walked up to his business, and he noticed that it was in complete disarray. There were weeds in the flower beds. Glass was broken. He walked in the front door, and his receptionist was asleep. He heard the salesman fighting, literally fighting in the back. They they were punching and kicking and screaming at one another. He went into his warehouse and it was scattered. It was chaotic. Music was blaring. No one was doing any work. And he gathered all of his employees together and he said, what's going on? What are you doing? Didn't you get the letters that I sent you? I wrote you consistently how to run the business. Didn't, Didn't you receive those? And they said, well, you know, yeah, we did. And those were great letters. They were, you know, they were so amazing that actually what we did is we, we took them and we bound them in a book and we put gold around the, the edges and we all have a copy of all of your letters sitting on our shelves. Some of us actually have, have multiple versions of that sitting there and, and some of us have actually memorized major portions of the letters you wrote. Every Sunday we get together and we read some of the letters that you wrote and he said, great, but did you do it? Did, did you... Did you look at the letters, read them, and then do what I told you? I said, no. We just read them and studied them and memorized them. We didn't do them. The owner of the business would probably, probably be a little disappointed, wouldn't he? Because he didn't write to them just to entertain them. And God hasn't given us his word just to fill our minds with doctrine, but to change our lives internally and externally in our attitudes, our feelings, our words, our behaviors. God's word is given to change our lives. Now, I I am not against biblical knowledge. (laughs) I spend a lot of time and money gathering up lots of biblical knowledge. I'm not against biblical knowledge at all, but biblical knowledge is not an end in and of itself. It's a means to be transformed into the image of Christ. And I suspect, in a Bible church in particular, that most of us have a greater need for more application rather than a greater need for more biblical knowledge. It's just a guess. James calls that true religion. So don't fool yourself because you know a lot. True religion is looking into the Word of God and allowing it to genuinely and deeply change your life. I want you to read with me chapter 1, verse 21. James says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now, this passage is entirely about application, but before we apply, let's fill our minds with a little bit more information, (laughs) okay? Specifically, we need to get on the same page. When James talks about the word, what's he talking about? 
may seem like an obvious question, but remember, James was probably the first New Testament book ever written. So when James talks about the word, he's not talking about the second half of your Bible at all. He's talking about the first half. He's talking about the Old Testament. Later on, verse 25, he will call it the the perfect law or the law of liberty. Notice verse 25, one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. Later on, he'll call a section of the law, the, the royal law. That is the chief of the law, but he's talking about the Old Testament. But I think specifically what James refers to here is the law as it's interpreted by Jesus Christ. Once you keep your place here, mark it in James, and turn back to the book of Matthew, chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The law interpreted by the Pharisees in their day was enslaving. It was oppressive to the people. It wasn't transforming. And Jesus came along and he interpreted properly the understanding and application of the law, the timeless principles of who God is and how we can be transformed into God's likeness. And he said, take my burden upon you, not the burden of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is oppressive in their understanding of the law, but but mine, which is light. It's a a paradox. It's a a yoke, like a yoke that goes over the oxen, but it's light. It's, It's actually freedom for you. That's how James can call it the perfect or the complete law, the law that creates freedom or liberty. It's the laws interpreted by Christ. Probably the best example of this is in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn back a few chapters in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, you have heard that the ancients were told. Where did they hear it? Well, they heard it from the scribes and their Pharisees. You heard just this. You shall not commit murder. It's in the law. Whoever commits murder should be liable to the court. But I say to you, this is how you should interpret the law. Everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before court. And he goes on and explains a proper interpretation of the law. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you. Verse 31, whoever sends his wife away and gives her a certificate of divorce may do so, but I say to you. Verse 33, you have heard it said that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven For it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the great footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Verse 38, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Then you will be sons and daughters of the Most High. Then you'll be like God. Okay, That's how to understand the law. So notice all the way at the end of this sermon, Matthew chapter 7 Verse 28, this is how the crowd respond, responded. It said, it says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes and their Pharisees. Who just gave opinions and argued amongst one another about the proper interpretation of the law and interpreted it in such a way that it was a burden and it wasn't life transforming at all. So I think what James is pointing to is the interpretation of the law by Jesus Christ. And second, 
the law is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. And that is precisely what Jesus did. Jesus lived according to the law. He never broke the law. He lived a a sinless life according to the law. So he fulfilled the requirements of the law in in himself, in his own behavior. But then having fulfilled the law, he made a sacrifice that would end the need for all other sacrifices. Because all other sacrifices were simply pointing toward Jesus Christ. They were a reminder that sin produces guilt. And the guilt is worthy of death. And the animals that sacrificed were a visual picture of the consequences of sin. But they didn't remove the debt of sin. And so when Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross, he fulfilled all of that. All of the sacrificial system was pointing to him, the full and final and perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. When you believe that, Christ's payment on the cross applies to you and your debt is removed forever and you have eternal life. James is saying, Jesus Christ is the one who can interpret the law. And you'll notice throughout James that he continuously refers back or alludes back to the Sermon on the Mount. Christ's interpretation, but also Christ's fulfillment. Turn back with me now to the book of James, chapter 1 and verse 21. Let's read it again. James 1, verse 21. He says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Notice his description. He says, The word is implanted. Not innate. You're not born with it. But this is a new covenant promise. Jesus Christ fulfilled the obligations of the old covenant. So he had the right to set it aside. Many of its principles still apply, but Jesus Christ was able to inaugurate a new covenant. Unlike the old covenant that was written on stones that was external to man, he inaugurated a new covenant through which he would write the principles of who God is and how we should live upon our hearts, not written engraved on stone. Jeremiah chapter 31 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. A few years ago, my wife and I were were sitting right back there, right right there. I can almost remember the exact seat. It was after a service and there was a young woman who had been sitting in the service. She was brought by a friend and God had really moved on her heart. As we sat with her, we explained the gospel again, and she believed. She said, yes, I, I, I believe that. And we prayed together, and she said, Jesus, I believe. I believe you died for my sins. I, I accept eternal life. Thank you for paying for me. Right back there. She trusted Christ. And we got together with her uh, over the next several weeks and months and began to help her learn, you know, how do you, how do you now walk with God? What does it look like? How do, How do you read your Bible and apply it? How do you learn to pray? We begin to do this. But what was most remarkable as we began to meet with her is she began to speak the word of God to us. She had only been to church a few times in her life. She didn't own a Bible. She had never read a Bible. But as we began to talk, she would say things that she had never read in the word before. 
There, was, there were almost quotations of the word of God. It was an amazing thing. It's the most vivid illustration that I personally have ever experienced of God, God writing his word upon someone's heart. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't study the word of God. Paul says, be diligent to present yourselves as workmen. Okay? Approved, really working hard to study and know and understand. The point is this, that when you go to the word with a receptive heart, that's what it means to receive it in humility, a teachable heart, you go with a teachable spirit, then you will understand God will bring illumination because he's already implanted his word in you. As believers in Jesus Christ, there's already a natural affinity and desire and longing to know and understand the word of God. That's what it means that he has written it upon your heart. So you can go to it and know God wants to speak to you and God will speak to you. Why? Because the living word that is Jesus Christ dwells inside of you if you're a believer in him. And he has implanted his spirit within you that helps you learn and grow and understand and apply his word. Let's read again, 121. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, James says, the word's implanted, but you have to receive it. What, What does that mean? If the word is already implanted within me, why do I have to receive it? Well, the translation is a little bit tricky, so let me me help out here. Uh, To receive, in a sense, means to welcome, okay? Imagine, you you remember uh, there was a short booklet that was written several years ago called My Heart, Christ's Home, okay? Imagine that your, your life, your heart, is like a home, and the moment that you believe, God implants his spirit within you, which is the spirit of Christ, And you have a receptivity to his word that's implanted within you. Now you need to welcome it, in a sense. Make God's word feel at home or feel comfortable in this new dwelling. Let me give you an illustration of this. Luke chapter 16, same word. In a parable, Jesus put in the mouth of a servant, a slave. He said, I know what I shall do so that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. Okay, welcome it. God's word is there now. In a sense, make it feel welcome. Make God's word feel at home. Uh, how do we do that? How do we do that exactly? Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, with a genuinely teachable spirit and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Okay? If I can take us back to this uh, analogy of your life or your heart being like a house, the first thing you've got to do for God's word to feel welcome and at home is throw out the unwanted guests. Okay, imagine God's word comes in because you have believed. And of course, you want to give the the master suite to the word of God. The only problem is they're squatters in the house, right? They've come in and they've just trashed the place, right? Their dirty laundry is everywhere and they take food out of the refrigerator and they've, the kitchen is a disaster, but they don't just eat in the kitchen. They eat, they eat in the living room and there, there are Cheerios and raisins. You can tell what era of life I'm just moving out of. They're stuffed down in the couch and everywhere you sit, it's sticky and, you know, God's word in a sense is kind of tiptoeing around. Man, there's no place for me to stand. Where am I going to sit? Where can I rest? James says, therefore, shedding yourself, it's it's, strip off the clothing of, uh, first he says, filthiness, which the word literally comes a root word, which refers to wax in your ear, okay? 
Why? You You can't hear it because you're plugged up. And all excesses of wickedness, there may be things in your life that are causing God's word not to be welcomed. You may be sitting there this morning saying, you know, I just, I don't sense in myself a longing for the word of God. It could be that there are attitudes, sins, relationships that are suppressing any desire and longing you could have for the word of God. Unwanted guests in your life. Peter puts it like this. Therefore, shedding or laying aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. How do newborn babies long for the, for the milk? Man, it's constant. It's incessant. And they, they drink and drink and drink and drink and then sleep. And they wake up and what do they want? They want more milk. And then they go to sleep. And what are they dreaming about? dream about milk, right? I mean, it's just, that's all that is on their minds. But sometimes we have appetite suppressants, so to speak. Our, our bellies are already filled with something else. And it's pushing out a longing for the word of God. So James says, first, laying all of that aside, welcome, welcome God's word. Second, make it not just a casual acquaintance. Verse 22, but prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. When uh, my sister and I were little kids, my parents had a, a chrome toaster. And we had a very small house, so the toaster sat on the kitchen table. And the problem was that when the toaster was sitting on the kitchen table, my sister wouldn't eat because she would spend the entire meal looking at herself. And uh, no, I didn't ask her permission because she doesn't live here in town. So she'll, she won't know that I used this illustration, but she would sit there and she would stare and she'd make faces at herself and screw up the face and just, she would just be mesmerized by her own face. And so finally, to get her to eat, my parents had to remove the chrome. They had to remove the toaster off of the table. And I want you to imagine for a second that you don't know what you look like. Okay, imagine you, you're not really familiar with your face. When I say, what do you look like? You can now probably conjure up in your mind a pretty good image of your physical features, right? But in James' day, there, there were no mirrors like we think of mirrors. They didn't exist yet. They didn't exist yet, okay? There were some types of mirrors that rich people had. It looks something like this. It's a very expensive mirror. This is uh, glass that was covered in gold and then polished. Most mirrors, th- this was invented by the Romans actually in James' day, in the first century sometime. Uh, most mirrors were just metal that was polished, and most people didn't own them. Only the rich owned them. Certainly a mirror like this, James' audience, remember, is exceedingly poor. There's probably not a single mirror amongst his entire audience. Okay, imagine that. Maybe they have some pots and pans that are banged out and a little bit shiny and they've tried to see their reflection or maybe they walked by some water and they saw their reflection in a pool. But they don't, they're not familiar with themselves. So imagine if they're walking through the marketplace and they see one of these. What would they do? Man, stop and stare and study. Wouldn't you want to know what you look like? 
But imagine that if you looked in that mirror and you didn't like what you saw. You might lay it down and walk away, right? That wouldn't be very wise, though, would it? Because that's truth. It is what it is. And you can pretend, but there you go. So is the man. He looks at his face in the mirror and then he immediately walks away and forgets what sort of person he was. Interestingly, James does use the, the, the gender here and he says man because we are more likely to go, yeah, whatever, right? <laughs> you didn't comb your hair. Really? Oh, it doesn't matter. You know, just, just going out, going to work. <laughs> Needs to comb their hair. They're what? Really, James says. That's foolish to look at yourself in the mirror and then walk away. Okay? A casual acquaintance, even with your own appearance. He says, no, gaze deeply. Once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this is the man that will be blessed in what he does. He says here, look intently. That's a word that was used when the disciples looked into the tomb and discovered it was empty. What? And they abided or they lingered. They lingered long. James is saying, look deeply, peer deeply, linger long. This man will be blessed in what he does. Not a forgetful hearer that is one who uh, intentionally neglects something and consequently doesn't do it. This is the man that will be blessed. Now, I want to ask an obvious question. And that is, uh, so what? You know, here we preach here that the gospel is absolutely free, right? You don't, you don't earn eternal life. You don't earn the removal of your sins. It's a free gift from God. You, you can't earn it. Price would be too high. You have nothing to give for that. So God freely offers it. He says, just believe. Just receive it as if it is a genuinely free gift. And if that's the case, and we are eternally secure, we rest securely in that forever because we simply have believed, why let the word change us? Okay, why bother? I want you to turn back again to the Sermon on the Mount with me. Matthew chapter 7, very end. Jesus gives a metaphor as he concludes this sermon. Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, so here's the application. Everyone who hears these words of mine and then acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Jesus said, if you want to live well and you want to live wisely, listen and obey. God's word can cause your life to work well. Well for you, well for others, honoring to God. Or in James' terminology, he says, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. It is able to save your souls. Now, a couple of weeks ago, We alluded to this briefly, but it's really critical to understand this phrase in order to understand the book of James. 
problem for us is we have been indoctrinated, so to speak. We hear the word save or salvation and we think, get out of hell, right? That's, that's what we think. But salvation is a much broader term than that. And remember, James has no New Testament. He is speaking from an Old Testament scriptural mindset. So when he's thinking salvation and he's thinking soul, he's thinking in Old Testament terms. So what is he thinking? Salvation means simply to rescue or to deliver. You always have to ask yourself, Old Testament or New, salvation from what? Rescue from what? It's helpful sometimes just to write in the margin, deliver. So you're not tempted to jump immediately to the issue of heaven and hell. Because that's not what James is talking about. And most of the time, when the word salvation is used in the Old Testament, that's not what it's talking about. Salvation simply means rescue or deliverance. The soul is the life or the person. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved, or literally just 3,000 people, okay? 3,000 people. Usually soul doesn't refer simply to the internal components or aspect of human nature, but to the person. You are a soul, in other words. It's not that you have a soul, you are a soul, right? So salvation of the soul means to rescue your life from something, Okay, to rescue or to deliver your life from something. Give you a couple of Old Testament illustrations. Psalm 6. Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. What does David want to be saved from? The penalty of his sin? No, that's not what he's talking about. There are enemies who want to spear him and kill him. And he says, God, rescue me. Deliver me from the people who are chasing me through the wilderness. Save my soul. Rescue my life. Proverbs, the one who guards his mouth literally saves his soul, okay, or rescues his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. What is he saying? He's saying, there are consequences for my actions, God, and sometimes when I talk too much, I get myself in trouble. Would you rescue me, okay? Rescue me by putting a guard or a muzzle over my life because the one who guards his mouth saves his soul. He's not talking about penalty of sin or heaven and hell. That's nowhere in the context. It just means rescue the life. So it can be rescuing my life physically from enemies or from illness. It can be uh, rescuing me from the consequences of, of foolish choices. Or, as we saw a couple weeks ago, Ezekiel 18, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, he commits iniquity, and then he dies because of it. For his iniquity which he has committed, he will die. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness which he has committed and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his soul. That is, he will avoid the consequence of God disciplining him and maybe, in a sense, ending his life or cutting his life short because he has continued in sin. That is specifically what James is talking about in James 5, verse 20. He who turns a sinner from the error of his ways, that is, he encourages a brother or sister in Christ to stop sinning, he will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Remember the context? In James' churches, people are ill. Some are even dying. Because there's sin, which is not to say every time you're sick, it's because you've sinned, right? Okay, I didn't say that. Okay, so don't go blog or tweet or whatever. I'm not, that's what I'm saying, right? Every time you're sick, it's not as a result of sin. But sometimes when we sin, the specific discipline God brings to our life is physical. James Church, that's what's happening. And he says, what's the solution for that? Well, repent. And if they haven't repented, you other believers come and surround them and encourage them to turn from that so their life can be saved. Okay? So, in James' book, 
here, he talks about salvation of the soul. He talks about several things. He talks about being saved from or delivered from self-deception. That's the mirror illustration. Foolish person looks at himself in the mirror, walks away. End of story. Saved from conflict. Okay, Because when we stop entering into every relationship selfishly, that reduces conflict in our lives. Saved from a useless life of no value to others. Uh, saved in James 5 from sickness, illness, death. Saved from shame when we stand before Jesus Christ and he evaluates our life. But it's not just saved from... It's also what we're saved for. We're saved for wisdom, okay, to understand truth and apply truth. We're saved for peace in our relationship, relationships. We're saved for, for useful living, to profit others by our choices, for extending life on earth, okay, because we're making wise choices, again, for reward when we stand before Jesus Christ. So James says, this is what happens when you don't just look at the word and walk away, but you actually take it and apply it and you do it. Now, read with me verses 26 and 27, James chapter 1. This is a specific application. James is is so application-oriented. The principle is, be a doer of the word and not only a hearer. Here's an application, verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his own tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is it's worthless, it's empty, it's futile, it's vain, it's of no point. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. See what he's saying? He's saying here's a specific application. Gaze into the word of God and what do you see? Well, first thing you see is I must be in the world, but I can't be stained by the world. I still must be holy and like God. And to do so, I must have a sense of of separation. But I also must have a sense of engagement so that I can have impact. As I gaze into the word of God, I see Genesis chapter 1. I'm created in the image of God that gives me dignity. see Genesis chapter 3. The image of God is tarnished. I see Christ's death on the cross to remove the dead of my sin, his spirit empowering me to begin to transform that tarnishing into his very image and transform me. I look into the word of God and I see, what does God love? What does God really care about? What concerns him? James says, let me remind you of just a couple of things. Here's pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God. Take care of those who maybe can't take care of themselves. Okay? Just, here's a real simple application The God who is great beyond our imagination, who created the universe, cares about individuals, and particularly the individuals in a culture who are vulnerable. Orphans went out on the street, and they either begged or they stole. There weren't a lot of job opportunities for widows, and so they had to beg. And God said, you know, I I want the culture of my people to reflect me. And what I really love and long for are those who are vulnerable. I'm the God of the vulnerable. I'll give you just a couple of Old Testament illustrations. This is everywhere, from the law all the way through the prophets. Psalm 68, verse 5. Behold, a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God dwells on high in his holy habitation. And what is he concerned about? He's a father of the fatherless, a judge for the widows. Isaiah 1, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. This is true, pure, undefiled religion. 
Or as Martin Luther once said, the world does not need a definition of religion as much as it needs a demonstration of religion. Be doers of the word. Now, here at Grace, there, there, I know a lot of you are, are deeply involved with caring for those who can't care for themselves or those who maybe can't give back. Uh, I, I don't want to finish this message without giving you an opportunity to be exposed to that. So you can walk out of here and you can think of some specific applications that you could do. Okay? So we put together a short video that just gives you a survey and some, and some examples of how you can care for those who have needs in our community. challenges us um, to get involved with the vulnerable. He says, pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, that we should care for and visit the widows and orphans. Now, obviously, he's not just talking about widows and orphans here. What he's talking about is people who are completely susceptible to society. They rely on others to meet their very basic needs. He's telling us, care for the vulnerable. Care for means you dwell among them, you walk among them, you care deeply for them, and you involve your life into their lives. This is pure and undefiled religion. So Christ provides this example in Luke 4. After he says his mission statement, what he does is he heals people, a paralytic, a man with a withered hand, a leper. He um, moves into their life and he heals them. So also he beckons all of us to do the same things. He asks us to find where the passion of your heart meets the hunger of this world. There are so many people in our town who are vulnerable and there are so many organizations that reach out to them. Hi, my name is Leisha Kim and I'm the Client Services Manager at Hope Pregnancy Center. Hope Pregnancy Center ministers to those who are experiencing a crisis pregnancy and we do this by sharing God's truth about the sanctity of life. Uh, My name is Brittany Gordon and uh, my story with Hope is I became pregnant my freshman year in college and I went to Hope. Um, I took a pregnancy test. It was positive. And um, my husband and I, my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, uh, both went there and we went through um, counseling and talked to people there. And uh, we had considered abortion. Um, We were both always against it um, up until the point where I was in the situation. I thought about school and I thought about finances and I thought about our relationship and how that would affect it. We talked to people there and we just had to really think about the decision that we made and it was a a lifetime decision either way and it's going to affect your whole life and after talking to them and after um, getting the first ultrasound at Hope uh, we decided we decided to keep it and um, I would have to say it's the best decision that I've ever made. Hi, I'm John Bergeron. I'm an adoptive dad. I've been married for almost 20 years to my beautiful bride. And we have two sons, both of whom are adopted. One from here in the United States in Texas and the other from China. God used this experience in our lives uh, to draw us into a new ministry. And he called us along with four other couples to set up a ministry here at Grace that aids other couples uh, in adoption, foster care, ways to care for the orphan. 
And that organization is called Faithful to the Fatherless. Faithful to the Fatherless is a ministry that focuses on obviously caring for children who originally didn't have parents. Uh, those that grew up in orphanages or uh, in the foster care system. So one of the things we're doing currently is we have a support group for adoptive and foster parents. Hi, I'm Chris Imperial. This is my wife, Becky. And we have uh, five children. And one of those is Noah, who we adopted about three years ago. He was originally from China, was adopted by another family, and uh, it, it didn't work out for them. And so we found out about him and adopted him shortly after that. Some families are called to bring children into their home, but each of those families needs a network of support around them people to pray for them, to give them a break when they need a break. And these are things that people of all ages can do. My name is Carmen Fuentes, and I am the Assistant Director for SOS Ministries. And SOS is a ministry that reaches out to inner city youth and their families. Where I, where I was, what happened, and where I'm at now, I don't know what to do. I can't do this on my own. And honestly, the point is that if she wouldn't have reached out and been consistent. I wouldn't be a part of SOS. I wouldn't, um, it, I think that's what it takes. It takes somebody for, for somebody to not just reach out once, but to be consistent in it. And because um, that's what God does. He, he just doesn't reach out once and leave you alone. I mean, he's very consistent about what he does. And a lot of it is just word of mouth. You know, kids invite kids. And started out as a teenage ministry. They started bringing their children, their younger brother siblings. And before you know it, we had 100 children in our building. So we started a children's ministry. And then their moms and dads were saying, you know, well, we, you know, kids were like, well, we want our parents to come to Christ. And so then we started a, a women's ministry, a, a men's ministry. A, we started a work program for men that were just out of prison. And the ministry just goes on and on. But we have over 300 volunteers. And this ministry could not happen if it were not for volunteers. So as you can see, there are some amazing organizations in our city who are transforming it with the love of Christ. But for all of us, what would James tell us today? James would say, make yourself available to the widows and orphans, to the vulnerable. What does that look like for us? It looks like we go about our day and we have eyes to see the people around us and to find who is vulnerable and how do I introduce them to the love of Christ. The stories are just a few illustrations of a lot of stuff that's going on in our community, in our church. Um, the three organizations on the left, those are Grace Bible Church organizations, uh, Youth Impact, reaching out to at-risk kids, sharing the gospel, discipling them, uh, faithful to fatherless, um, caring for orphans, uh, caring for families who may get into the foster care system or adopt. Owls is our older, wiser, loving saints. That's our ministry uh, of and for our widows and our widowers. And then there are community organizations that we uh, link arms with, Aguiland Pregnancy Outreach. Uh, they work with women who have unplanned pregnancies, and they support them in a variety of ways. If they choose to put their child up for adoption, they help with that. Hope Pregnancy, also you saw a story of hope. Um, they do pre uh, pregnancy screening as well as provide some really tangible care. I know we did a, uh, some of our students from our school did a diaper drive last year and they gave hundreds of diapers to uh, young moms who needed them. Brad's, Brad's Church Pantry puts food on people's plate uh, and they can't afford enough food. SOS Ministries, you also heard one of their stories. Uh, they work a lot with uh, families who are 
surrounded by gangs and violence, that kind of thing. Lots of ways to get involved. And, and really, this is, in a sense, for, for us as a, a church, as believers, where we can really shine as, as uh, light and, and be salt in our community when we get in and we, we spend time and energy and even money serving people, okay? Serving people particularly who are vulnerable and at need. If you are interested in any of these, you can go to our website, click on Serve Community Outreach and get more information. Uh, the only one that's not on there is OWLS. You can just call the church office for OWLS. Um, but I do want to encourage you. Uh, this is what James is talking about. So let, let's not delude ourselves that God's word has genuinely transformed us if we don't really have a, have a heart and love the things that God loves. Okay? But as we, we peer deeply into the word of God with a, a humble, receptive, teachable heart, God's word has the power to transform our attitudes. Later on, we'll see how it has the power to transform our speech, has the power to transform our relationships, so that we can be a blessing to the people around us. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that even this week, we might approach your word a little differently. I pray, Father, that we would open it up and we would invite you to speak. And that your implanted word would just explode, not just within our minds, but within our hearts. I pray, Father, you teach us to love what you love. And Father, I thank you that although you are so great and awesome and powerful, yet your heart beats for those who are vulnerable and needy. May we do the same. In Christ's name, amen. May you be richly blessed this week, and may you be a blessing to those around you. Have a great week.